I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast, Headspace, now in its new weekly format where we bring together prospect editors and experts pushing the question... What's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect, and today my colleague Jay Elwes, who's our executive editor, spoke to Sir John Soares, who, between 2009 and 2014, was head of the Secret Intelligence Service, which you probably know as MI6. With Brexit occupying Whitehall and Trump in the White House, just how secure does Britain look? One thing I don't think we can accept is Britain adrift. Uh, Britain without a major strategic anchor uh, in the Western world. Jay was given an exclusive interview by the former spy chief, and here's how it went. So the first question I wanted to ask was, what do you think the consequences for Britain's intelligence and security are of Brexit? I think in the short term, uh, they won't be that far-reaching. Um, uh, intelligence relationships are bilateral, either country to country, the European Union doesn't play a role on intelligence itself. Um, and of course, our closest intelligence partnerships with the United States, uh, with France and Germany and others, uh, will remain very much intact. My concern on the intelligence and security front is over the exchange of data. Uh, data is now central to the way in which security services in particular monitor threats, <coughs> uh, track people of um, who might pose a threat to UK security. Um, and the rules on exchange of data are going to be set within the European Union. Uh, and we won't be around the table with our voice and our weight uh, stressing the vital importance of these data exchanges to our national security. So we will, first of all, be a recipient of the data that's made available for us. And secondly, and even more importantly, we won't be around the table defining the rules for data exchange and the balance between uh, uh, protecting the privacy of individuals, which is really important, and protecting national security, which is also really important. And what sort of data are we talking about here? We're talking about data on uh, the movement of people across borders. Uh, we're talking about um, uh, uh, people who uh, are uh, uh, being tracked by security services because they're known to be of concern uh, and have taken part in uh, you know, extremist uh, websites or chat forums or, um, or have been on criminal registers. It's not just the terrorism side, it's about crime as well. Um, and so it's about... Uh, uh, it, it, it's about tracking and being able to track and monitor people who pose a threat uh, to uh, the rules of our society. So to be absolutely clear, you're saying that there will 
potentially be an effect on this data sharing uh, in between us and our European partners and that this could in theory have an effect on our ability to keep Britain safe? I, I, what I'm saying is that the, uh, the data sharing rules that are now established um, <clears throat> have benefited from substantial UK input. Uh, and uh, I'm confident that the British government will negotiate an arrangement whereby existing data flows can be maintained in a post-Brexit world. It will be uh, very serious if they can't do that, but I'm confident that they will be able to do that. Um, but it's the longer term, uh, how you sustain uh, the, uh, the framework of laws uh, across the European Union which meets our UK concerns, we won't have a voice around that table anymore. So progressively, the European Union regulations on data sharing and data storage and data privacy will be designed to meet the interests of the European Union and we will simply be a rule taker. So there is a, a metaphorical table that is surfacing in our conversation mm. that we will no longer be able to sit around. What, what specifically is the group of which we will no longer be a part where all of these standards are being set? Well, it's the European Union, um, and the European Union has many working groups um, uh, which, at which each member state is represented, and their conclusions go up for approval or amendment or, or, or ratification by uh, the ministers, um, and we won't be around any of those tables. But, I mean, are there any uh, specifically security-related organisations within the EU structures that we will no longer be a part of? Uh, well, there there are the um, uh, uh, there are the uh, uh, all the various working groups, uh, including on counterterrorism, um, which are sort of policy working groups. Um, uh, there are gatherings uh, of security services, intelligence services, which track. EU membership, but they're not EU organisations. That's why I'm hesitating on this. They're not EU organisations. They are member. They are meetings of the member states of the European Union, but they are nonetheless of the European Union. Now, whether we stay as as part of those structures, the, the Swiss are, are part of those structures, which is a, a, a good precedent because we're already members. I hope we would we would be able to stay on as a member, but they're not they're not really policy forums. Those they're they're more opportunities to discuss issues. Mm. And will, what effect will this have, do you think, will Brexit have on our uh, Britain's ability to project influence abroad? I, I think we don't know the answers to that yet. The, uh, the world was surprised when Britain voted for Brexit. Um, it wasn't what people had expected. Uh, uh, I don't think people in, in our own country expected it uh, either. Um, whichever side of the, of the debate that you were on came as a surprise. Um, uh, and I think people are now waiting to see what the results of that are. Um, the key issues, key uh, factors for being a respected power in the world are, uh, first of all, to have a strong and dynamic economy. Uh, second, to have really effective political leadership. Uh, and third, to have investment in the tools of of delivering impact around the world, your armed forces, your diplomats, your intelligence services, your aid program, uh, in order to be able to make a difference on the ground. If any of those three are not in place, well, you're not going to have much of an impact. So uh, I think it will depend a great deal on the performance of the British economy in a post-Brexit world um, and the ability of our political leaders now to ensure that we don't go into a 
uh, a downturn for five or ten years where we're underperforming our main competitors. Is the current government outward-looking enough in a way that you, as somebody who's uh, dedicated your life to, to foreign service and so on, uh, as you would like to see? I think we have made less impact in the world in the last ten years than we did in the uh, 30 years before that. I think a period from 1980 to 2010, Britain was quite a, an influential player in the world, um, whether it was Thatcher or, or Major or Blair or, or, or even Gordon Brown, who made a big impact during the, um, uh, during the financial crash in, in mitigating the effects of that, uh, 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 of that crisis. Um, I don't think since 2010 we've really had a big influence in global affairs, um, as partly because we've been carrying the political aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan. It's partly just the impact of the of the financial crash itself, um, but also I think the country's just become less confident um, and uh, less outward-looking itself. Uh, and now, of course, we're uh, saddled with the Brexit negotiation, uh, which rightly consumes the vast bulk of the energy of uh, top ministers and the prime minister herself. Um, and that squeezes out a lot of time for dealing with some of the issues around the world. Uh, to her credit, the prime minister's visited you know, the Gulf and Saudi Arabia. She's visited China. Um, she's been to India. Um, I don't think she's a natural at, um, uh, uh, at engaging on these big political issues with foreign leaders, but she's done it in a, in a professional and workmanlike way. Um, the... Uh, uh, I think it's 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 not so much the personalities in government, um, well, perhaps not all of them, but uh, uh, some of the uh, it, what, what it's really about is that we are distracted as a nation uh, by the requirements of Brexit, um, and people are rather waiting for us to come through this process. You mentioned the uh, the aftermath of Iraq and Afghanistan, and you also mentioned the the aftermath of the Great Financial mm. Crisis. But then you said that there was also a sense in which we had uh, lost our kind of outward facingness. Mm. You, you, but you didn't give it necessarily a reason for that. I was wondering if if there were other reasons that were involved in around that period of 2010 that you think caused Britain to become more solipsistic. Well, the the Cameron government were faced with a number of international crises. They had to deal with uh, the Arab Spring. Um, uh, uh, and we were prominent in getting involved in Libya. Uh, we were then a bit, um, uh, what's the right word, uh, very hesitant about getting too involved in Syria. Yes. Uh, and uh, we weren't helped by having partners in the US administration who were also fairly reluctant. Uh, they too bore the, um, uh, the uh, political imprint of the of Iraq and Afghanistan and of the financial crash and they were more domestically uh, focused so do you uh, think in retrospect then it was a mistake for us not to become more involved in Syria I, I think for example the refu the failure to stand up to the red line about uh, chemical weapons um, uh, David Cameron's decision to uh, refer the matter to Parliament rather than taking the responsibility on his and his government's shoulders, uh, and then uh, Barack Obama also ducking the issue in the United States, that um, led to much greater suffering in Syria as a consequence. It opened the way for the Russian intervention, and it left Assad in power. 
Uh, and I think the world is worse off for the fact that we didn't intervene in Syria in 2013. So you think the parliamentary vote, as far as you're concerned, went the wrong way? Absolutely. And uh, I'm quite confident that had David Cameron gone ahead with the original plan, which was for American, British and French warplanes to take immediate uh, action in response to um, uh, uh, in response to the widespread use of chemical weapons in Damascus, uh, that he would have had very strong national and parliamentary approval for that. And as a, as a consequence, it allowed Russia to occupy a space that we would, in theory, have occupied hadn't had it not been. Exactly. We vacated the theatre and, and they, they moved in in our place. What consequence of Russia's new interventionist stance then? Well, I, I think Russia has... Uh, Not that it's that new, actually, no, I think <laughs> Well, well uh, certainly, uh, and another is issue we didn't address was Ukraine, where again, um, uh, uh, Germany and France were actively involved uh, in dealing with the crisis in Ukraine and the, and the, um, uh, the Russian intervention there. Uh, Britain wasn't really uh, in the room, wasn't wasn't involved in that process at all. So it's another example of us not being uh, not being fully engaged in the biggest issues uh, uh, on the on the global agenda. I think the you ask about Russia, what are these impacts on on Russia's role? I think the uh, the mistakes that Obama made in his mishandling of Putin, coupled with the mistakes that Britain and America both made in. Uh, Syria and in Ukraine has meant that uh, uh, President Putin has re-established Russia as a more uh, respected and effective force in the world than would otherwise have been the case. Do you think we're stuck with that? Is that how the situation will remain or do you think that Putin is uh, weaker than he appears? Well uh, I think Putin is a a very skillful political leader. Um, He has an election this year which I'm quite confident he will he will win. Uh, uh, Russia itself is a country quite heavily dependent still on uh, oil and gas exports uh, and uh, I don't believe we're going to return to the uh, sunny days of $100 oil for the oil producers Um, and he's going to need to mix up the economy he's going to need to have a a process of of, uh, broadening the the, broadening the economy so it's not so heavily dependent upon uh, on uh, oil and gas uh, and I don't really see that happening he's been he's been very astute in maintaining domestic stability and in projecting Russia abroad there hasn't really been a reform agenda in Russia itself how much longer can he keep going well uh, under the new Russian constitution he now has a, a another second term um, uh, which will take him to 2024 uh, under the Russian constitution he would need to stand down then or perhaps they will change the constitution again who knows um, but I think actually Russians are beginning to glimpse the prospect of life uh, after Putin um, we're seeing a, a new range of people coming forward some of the uh, older older guard in the um, uh, in the Kremlin have been moved on uh, and I think um, uh, uh, Putin is Putin doesn't want to do what Brezhnev did and um, Brezhnev allowed his entire entourage to grow old with him until the whole lot's all crumbled and died literally uh, uh, I think Putin is more aware of that and sees that as part of the reason why the Soviet Union collapsed uh, Putin is the sort of father of post-Soviet Russia in many ways more so than Yeltsin Um, at least in the eyes of many Russians. Uh, And so he's going to want to preserve that legacy and manage the transition. But he does so from a perspective of of, uh, 
uh, viewing the world largely as a zero-sum battle, struggle, uh, and believing that the Americans and Europeans are trying to do him down, trying to change Russia. Um, are they, do you think? No, I don't, actually. Uh, I don't. Um, uh, we've had a pretty defensive posture towards Russia for the last uh, 30 years or so. Um, uh, and the last thing we want is for the Russian system to collapse. The idea of having a sort of um, like Yugoslavia in the 1990s to have in the 2020s, uh, you know, chaos from, from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok, that would, be, that would be a complete disaster for, for everybody's interests. So we want the Russian system to stay intact. We want change to come to Russia, but it needs to come as evolutionary change. Um, and uh, uh, Putin did a good job in his early years of restabilizing what was a very chaotic society, uh, but it now needs to move forward. You, you mentioned a, a defensive posture against uh, Russia, and I, I wonder whether you pay much attention to the, the, the slightly more uh, uh, edgy commentary that suggests that Russia has uh, tried to subvert Western elections, has had a hand in the United States, but also has had a hand in trying to influence various outlets in Britain, news outlets has been trying to influence, was tried to influence the Brexit referendum and so on. Do you pay any attention to specifically the British component of that well we all have to pay attention to the fact that one of the things the russians have done in recent years is master the information game uh, they have long been experts of propaganda and they are doing that now in a very 21st century way are they beating us at that game uh, i think they're better than us at that game because we rely on objective media um and accountable media uh whereas uh, they have um uh a, a wide range of of, um, of of opportunities, which we have created many in the West, for them to influence our political thinking and our our information uh, channels. You know, Russia today is one example of that. Um, but the uh, the uh, activities of uh, Russia in the American elections, um, we saw. Um, in the French elections, uh, 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 revelations towards the end of that process about Russian intervention, they are clearly trying to um, uh, uh, damage the credibility of Western electoral processes and to some extent tilt the playing field towards um, the candidates who, in their view, would collectively damage the Western interest. So it's your assessment that there is actually a Russian effort to have this influence on European and Western European political processes like elections. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. And it's a long-standing Russian activity. During the 1970s, uh, Russia controlled the European Communist Parties in the various elections. They had a lot of influence in, in Western trade union uh, organizations. In the German peace movement in the 1980s, you saw a strong uh, uh, Soviet hand directing their activities. Um, uh, uh, and it's the same tactics, but translated into the 21st century. Um, and what we saw in terms of uh, uh, Russian paid adverts on, on Facebook and other uh, US platforms during the US election, um, I think it's pretty clear uh, that the Russians were trying to intervene. Quite what their goals were is not yet clear. Um, but uh, uh, the, the intervention, I think, is, is, is established fact. Mm-hmm. Do you think it had any effect in the United States? It's very hard to tell. Um, uh, on the margins, possibly, but what drove the uh, uh, the election of Donald Trump was the credibility that he carried in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania and uh, um, uh, and Ohio, uh, where the 
white working classes came, swung in behind Trump very heavily. I don't think that was driven by Russian propaganda. Mm. It seems that President Putin has a friend in the White House. He doesn't necessarily seem to have a friend in Downing Street, but he's got one in Washington, D.C. That, that is different, and it's quite remarkable. Uh, how does it change uh, Britain's security outlook, and how does it change our, uh, our ability to, to work alongside our U.S. partners? Well, we work with the U.S. system, uh, the president obviously is a crucial player in that system, <clears throat> uh, uh, but I think you have to look at Russian policy of the uh, the Russian policy of the U.S. administration, uh, which involves sanctions. It involves um, uh, uh, a great deal of skepticism about uh, political engagement with Russia, uh, uh, but also some uh, very practical military cooperation. For example, in the com- the conflict with Islamic State uh, in in Syria and Iraq. So um, uh, I. I don't. I think you could read too much into some of the things that uh, uh, President Trump has said. Now he clearly uh, has not got a background in in international affairs. He's not a subtle uh, player of international diplomacy. Um, uh, that came through in the uh, 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 has come through over the last two years. So, um, uh, uh, but I don't think the uh, the personal relationship he might have had with Putin in different circumstances is actually having a, a great deal of influence. Um, and we'll see what uh, uh, the uh, special counsel, Bob Mueller, comes up with in his investigation. Do you think there's anything there for uh, Robert Mueller to find? Well, we don't know. That's for him to look at. And I think they're following the money. Uh, I, I think the idea that the Trump campaign was in collusion with the Russians over cyber attacks against the Democrats, I think that's pretty far-fetched. I'd frankly be very surprised if Mueller came up with credible evidence on that. Um, But quite what the financial dealings are, uh, I think is a big question mark. Between who and who? Well, uh, the financial dealings between the the Trump business empire and uh, uh, and Russian money. You think that there is the possibility of a relationship there? Uh, I don't know, but I think there's a possibility. Right. Um, did you? I'm sure you did see the dossier that was compiled by Christopher Steele. Do you have any comment that you would be able to make uh, on that, or indeed on him? Well, Christopher Steele is someone I've never met. Uh, he'd left um, for foreign service before I became chief of MI6. Uh, uh, he his name never crossed my screen in the five years I was I was uh, I was chief of the service. So the first I heard of him was when this dossier was uh, was released. Um, uh, he is obviously reporting stuff that Russians have told him. Quite why those Russians told him, I don't know. Um, but he will uh, uh, he can answer those questions. Uh, he can answer those questions himself. Um, One of the consequences of that dossier and its and its provenance and so on has been it, it has allowed Donald Trump to uh, to to distance himself and also to be rather belligerent towards his own intelligence and security mm. organizations and that strikes me as a, a, an entirely unfavorable uh, situation what what are the consequences from from your perspective of a, of a leader of a close ally who decides not to take the daily presidential briefing well, that's got nothing to do with his attitudes towards MI6 or his, uh, the fact he's heard of Christopher Steele or whatever. Indeed. Um, and I don't think his um, uh, sharp and unjustified criticism of the FBI has got anything to do with, uh, uh, with um, uh, British intelligence either. I think that's entirely about domestic politics. Um, 
But uh, the, the, the American and British way of making decisions on foreign policy over the last uh, 70 years has been to start with the intelligence work out what the policy options might be and the impact of those various policy alternatives and then to decide the best one. But the starting point has always been intelligence. I think the US administration at the moment are doing precisely that, for example, on North Korea. Um, and the, the, uh, uh, the decision-making process hinges just as much on the interagency process in, in uh, Washington involving the Pentagon, the CIA and the State Department and others, um, as it does on the, the, the knowledge and, and uh, uh, attitudes of the president himself. Of course, the president has to sign off on the, on, the, uh, 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 on the final policy, but I think actually the foreign policy increasingly now we're into the second year of the Trump administration. I think the foreign policy is coming through the, the organs of the US administration as it interacts with Congress, rather than being driven by the personality of the president or the White House machine. Mm-hmm. If we just bring it back to, to Britain now. Mm. Um, we, we're going through Brexit, and there is a relationship with the president, President Donald Trump, that is uncertain and that brings with it quite a lot of questions. Mm. One of the questions it raises in my mind, those two things raised in my mind, are is, is, is exactly who, uh, with whose interests are Britain now mm. aligned? I mean, it, it, it's no longer the case that it will be the EU. It seems not to be Trump. Who then? Well, I think you pose a very good question there, and that is something which um, uh, the current government uh, haven't really come to a, a view about. Um, for the last 30 years, we have become increasingly engaged with the European Union, and we've worked very effectively in the world alongside uh, France and Germany. The Iran nuclear negotiations is one example, uh, uh, resolving the Yugoslavia conflicts is another, um, and uh, I, I think where, uh, and, and Libya, we work very closely with the French on that. The advantage of working with major European countries is we uh, are very close in terms of our values and our policies, uh, and um, we are of roughly the same size, so it's a debate amongst equals. We, of course, have a very close relationship with the United States as well, in some ways on the intelligence side, even closer, considerably closer, than it has been with our European partners. But we're in bed with an elephant, uh, and you can maybe influence it at the margins, but you can't. Uh, it's not a dialogue of equals between London and Washington. Um, uh, we have now turned our back on Europe. It's not uh, irrecoverable. Uh, I think it's possible to come out of the Brexit process uh, with uh, continuing foreign policy, defence and security cooperation with France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Poland uh, intact. And I think that should be a high priority for this government. If we can't achieve that, then we would have to associate ourselves more closely with the United States and uh, accept that uh, lesser role, um, loss of sovereignty, loss of decision-making, that being aligned with the United States brings with it. Um, One thing I don't think we can accept is Britain adrift. Uh, Britain without a major strategic anchor uh, in the Western world. Uh, Tony Blair successfully managed to uh, align himself with both America and Europe, um, occasionally at at a cost, for example, over Iraq, Um, uh, but I think in the last, uh, uh, right now, um, uh, we, uh, we have ended up turning our back on Europe and not having a real welcome mat laid out for us in Washington. And we've got to work out which way we want to turn and um, be prepared to pay a price one way or the other. 
Do you think Britain can ever realistically have a relationship of equals with China? Um, look, China and the United States are the two global powers for the 21st century. And their relationship with one another is going to determine um, the, 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 the global security architecture and whether we live in a pe period of uh, century of peace and stability uh, or whether there's going to be constant sort of confrontation and, and aggravation uh, between the two global powers. Uh, the other major powers are going to be Russia, Europe, increasingly India, and then at the next tier down, uh, uh, you know, third tier, Japan and Britain and so on. Um, so uh, the... Uh, we will never be on a uh, equal footing with China. It already has an economy in purchasing power terms greater than the United States. Uh, and I think they see themselves as America's uh, counterpart. And, and, and that is the reality. I think we can do business with China. I think we can have a security relationship with China. But we shouldn't kid ourselves that it's uh, going to be a relationship of equals. Um, that's not how the Chinese will view it. Um, and uh, uh, the, we have to, you know, above all, you have to be realistic about the role that, you, that we as a country can play in the world. How likely do you think is it that there will be conflict between China and the United States within the coming decades? Well, I'm, I'm reading um, um, Graham Allison's book at the moment on the uh, uh, Thucydides trap, which he calls Destined for War. Um, and Sounds cheerful. Well, it's not very encouraging. Uh, and uh, I have to say that there are only basically two strategic alternatives. One is that the United States and China learn to share power and cooperate with each other to provide a security arrangement across uh, uh, the uh, Asia, ultimately Eurasia, across the Pacific, um, or whether there's a confrontation and we, we move into a world of spheres of influence. I think, frankly, that um, uh, President Trump and President Xi Jinping and President Putin are all naturally inclined towards spheres of interest and spheres of influence and control uh, rather than complicated cooperative uh, working together. Um, I think ultimately that means that the China, that, that means the United States will have great difficulty asserting itself uh, uh, in Asia. It will no longer be the most powerful player in Asia and they will be replaced progressively by China. Will that replacement process potentially lead to the conflict? That well, you it certainly could. And the, the great challenge of um, uh, leaders and, and statesmen and diplomats in uh, Beijing and Washington is to avoid that. Because it's hugely in both countries' interests that there's some form of smooth transition from a world of one superpower to a world of two broadly co-equal superpowers, which is going to be the case for uh, the rest of our lives and our children's lives. That puts a, a, a somewhat alarming spin on the North Korean situation. How do you think that one is going to play out between the States and China? Well, uh, I think the United States has some very difficult decisions to take. Um, the, the North Korean regime are set on having nuclear weapons that they can land on the United States um, and the United States is going to have to determine whether it can live with that threat or whether it has to uh, destroy that threat uh, and that is the difference between uh, uh, the Americans striking North Korea and not striking North Korea. I think the Chinese um, clearly would prefer the situation to be managed. Um, uh, they don't want a conflict in Korea. But I don't think they're going to 
uh, prostrate themselves before the Americans and plead them not to do what they would see as uh, 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 unnecessary and, and probably against everyone's interests. I think the Chinese would... Uh, I think if the Americans go ahead and try and destroy North Korea's nuclear forces, the, the Chinese would see that as an opportunity to rebuild the Korean Peninsula in Chinese interests and on Chinese terms um, and make a strategic gain, a bit like Iran who made a strategic gain after the US invasion uh, of Iraq. Uh, I think there's a parallel there uh, the Chinese won't, won't have, won't have um, uh, overlooked. Fascinating. And finally, just back to, back to the United Kingdom, Do you, are you optimistic about Britain's future and about how Brexit uh, will affect our national standing? Uh, I have my gloomy moments. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but I do think Britain has some remarkable qualities um, in terms of uh, uh, the, the resilience of our people, the uh, sense of unity that we've had in times of difficulty in this country. Uh, that's been put at strain uh, because of uh, Scottish nationalism, uh, the challenges in Northern Ireland and so on, and the divisions within, um, uh, uh, within economic groups in, in, throughout the British Isles. Um, but I think there is still an important role for us. I think we are very widely respected around the world, um, uh, and we need to come through these difficult negotiations uh, on Brexit in a state where our economy is as well protected as it possibly can be um, uh, and uh, that we can develop a new generation of political leaders to take over from the, the current group in both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, which are younger, more vibrant, uh, more outward-looking uh, and more future-thinking than the political leadership is at the moment. Sir John Sawyers, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Clark, editor at Prospect, and the producer and presenter this time was Jay Elwes. You can read more on intelligence and security on our website, www.prospectmagazine.co.uk. And you might also note that our subscription rates are very reasonable. Please do be sure to tune in again soon to the Prospect podcast. 